Yeah. And, and there's the setup. I, I think there's a lot going on in, in this text. And, uh, and so uh, just, just uh, prepare yourselves for that. But, but here's the big thrust of what James has been pressing us with. We, we've been hearing from Jesus' little brother, James, uh, as he recounts uh, his life and his learnings from his big brother and, and is sharing it with this uh, community of churches that he's interacting with. And then we, now 2,000 years, get to hear those very words. Though not written to us, they are for us. And so, genuine faith leads to works. And we believe James isn't just writing a bunch of Proverbs. He's not just a New Testament Proverbs with a bunch of little one-liners. He actually has a point that he's driving towards. And he's been doing it over these four rhythms. uh, That faith leads to works. And so, faith works when we're tested. That when the hard, challenging things come, something gets shaken out. If you remember, my buddy Will a few weeks ago talked about when you pop Kool-Aid, <laughs> what comes out, right? The purple of the grape, uh, grape Kool-Aid versus purple Kool-Aid, whatever it is. Anyway, faith works when I'm tested, and then faith works when I love. That there's a faith that gets manifested, not just keeping this to ourselves, but in horizontal ways, we demonstrate love to those around us, specifically around partiality. He really pressed us in that area, the great leveler, the great equalizer. And then we're in this third part, faith works when we speak, the power of words. And he's going to then close his letter with this idea of faith working when we persevere. And someone's going to read the book of James along with us this morning. So that is, fan- that is fantastic. Uh, but I-, I hope these ideas don't look new to you. There's been a movement, right? Faith test, Don't just be hearers, but be doers of the word. And then, (laughs) you're a good man. You're good. This is a family church, right? This is what I love. This is what I love about Hillcrest. It is a family church. Every once in a while, there's a baby that cries. I can't get enough of it. Every once in a while, you know, my wife's over here, and uh, she just puts me in check for service usually to make sure we're we're not veering off from whatever story that that I'm telling. Uh, No partiality. And then he says, leads to works. What works? Faith works when we speak. What works? He told us our words. Our words are works. The power of words are actually expressions of our faith. The words we use, and not just extroverted, because sometimes I use a lot of words, but also you introverts that stuff, those are words that you just aren't verbally communicating. There's a nonverbal word that you're using. That's a demonstration of your faith. And then wisdom. Tyler did a great job last week talking about wisdom, seeking to live from God's perspective. Now, what happens when you don't live from God's perspective? What happens when you're not embodying that wisdom that Tyler talked about last week, that James was talking about? What usually happens is there's a quarrel or a fight or some anger that starts to develop. Possibly, on your way over here this morning, Even you, yes, you, on your way over here, got in a fight on your way to church this morning. Maybe this past week there was a a challenge in the workplace or or in your home or with some friends that that started to to swirl and and there was this fight or conflict that started to happen. James is going to tell us, where's that come from? Where's that conflict come from? He's building off of what he shared last week. It it comes from not seeing the world through God's eyes, not seeing his perspective. And so here is where he's taking us this morning. James 4, 1 to 10, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here's where we're headed this morning, that conflict arises when? When we misuse God for our own selfish gain. Conflict arises when? When do fights and anger and conflict arise? When we're misusing God, when we don't get what we want from God, when we're misusing God for our own selfish gain. And even in the midst of that, God continues to pour out more grace. So join me, pray with me as we, uh, as we dig into the text uh, that James has for us this morning. God, you are so good. Uh, whatever conflict might be taking place in our lives as we drove here, as someone cut us off and road rage emerged to the forefront of our head, the conflict in the workplace or at home with our kids, we want to hear from you and how you are present in those moments and, and working to draw us more to yourself. So reveal yourself this morning, we always pray. Amen. Amen. So like Larry said, I think this is a heavy text. I think it's a marathon this morning. And so I just want to walk through the four rhythms we're going to go through. The first point is going to be significantly longer in terms of weighted time. So if you're looking at your watch going, we just finished point one, we're going to, we're going to move through the, the, third, the next three faster, but at least giving you a sense of where we're headed in these four points. Here's where we're headed. Here's our map for the morning that we are misaligned adulterers who often ask God to provide for our illicit pleasures. And despite being misaligned and trying to misuse God, he continues to saturate us with his grace. And because we long to align ourselves to God and experience his goodness and grace, if that is our heart, James is gonna tell us we choose to live differently. And then I think it's in the text, you guys are gonna wrestle if it's there, I think it's there. We are motivated by joy. James calls us and motivates us with this compelling call that there is joy that comes with experiencing more of God's grace, his presence, and being exalted. So here we go. Uh, just the first one. We are misaligned adulterers who often ask God to provide for our illicit pleasures. James says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? To which we would respond, we know. What causes quarrels and fights among you? We would say, James, it's not a what, James. It's a who. And I know who it is. It's that stinking spouse I have. That's where, it all, that's where the problem is. It's not a what, James. It's a who. And I could tell you their name and their birthday. And they're standing right over there. That's where the quarrels and fights come from. It's that in-law that always comes to my house and always tells me all the things I could do better. 
as if this is their house. They're coming into my house and telling me all the things that I could do. That's who it is. That's where the quarrels and fights come from, James. That's where it's stemming from. You know, my kid, and I might even give you a specific age range of maybe seven or eight that, that has a sense that they have a corner on the market of knowledge and how life is intended to work. You know where James, James, you know where quarrels and fights come from? It comes from that little seven-year-old that thinks they got it all figured out. That's who it is. And James says, it's not a who, is it? What does James say? Where do quarrels and fights come from? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you and you desire and you do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. Where Where does conflict come from? It doesn't come from the who that you're in conflict in. Where does it come from? The passions that are embedded within us. Man, you know that guy over there who drives that really nice F-150? He doesn't deserve that. He didn't even work for that truck. He inherited it because his grandparents died and he got this nice inheritance check and he went and bought a truck. He didn't even work hard. I'm working hard. He doesn't deserve that. You know, I don't know if you know this, but this is what my spouse said this week and they just don't understand. They can't figure it out. If they only operated this way or that way, life would be better. You know that neighbor that I have that just is a knucklehead. They're always just, you know, they don't even mow their lawn. They just, it's just like this scope creep. They're dandelions. They're going to start invading my lawn. But that's where the conflict is. It's that neighbor of mine. What does James say? Your passions are at war within you. This anger and this jealousy starts to come out of our lives and get reflected at those around us. But then James adds another layer. What is it? Where does this come from? It's because you're not getting what you want. Where does the conflict come from? It's not the who, it's the what. And what is it? It's because you're not getting your way. If things just reflected the way I saw the world, life would be better. Isn't that how it works? If people just saw it my way, Nate, ah, everyone would get along because we're not getting what we want. Or to put it a different way, we think blank will make us happy. If those dandelions just stayed on the neighbor's side of the lawn, I'd be happier. (laughs) You know, if I had that truck in my life, I'm driving an 09 CRV, guys. If I had that truck in my life, I'd just be a little happier. But I'm not getting what I want. To make it even more personal, if my kids just did what I want when I wanted them to, then I'd be happier. But I'm not getting what I want. And James adds another layer. He says this, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He adds this next layer that that this conflict that resides within me ultimately isn't just against the other who that I'm in conflict with. What is it? He climbs one more layer that we don't actually have a conviction that God's ways are higher or better than my ways. Or when we don't get our way, we won't trust his. That when I don't get the thing that I want, what does that reveal? That I don't truly believe his better is better. 
that I look around and I don't know if you get a sense, there's some challenging things going on broadly and then we could bring it more at home in our lives. Do we have a conviction that God's ways are higher and better than my ways? Or do I lack trust when I don't get my way? James adds one more layer to that argument because I think the conflict is here. What does James actually say the conflict, where the conflict is? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That the conflict isn't this horizontal here, it's actually vertical. And what's the conflict? He says, you are an adulterous people. That we're cheating on God. That we're looking and seeking out our pleasure independent from him. That we're cheating on his affections and trying to have them met elsewhere in life. And I think the conflict's here. James is trying to tell us it's actually much more significant than that. So James, should I not ask for things then in life? I mean, that truck still looks pretty nice. And I'd still love my kids to be a little bit more uh, compliant when I lay out some guidelines. James, should I not ask for these things? What does James say? He says this, you do not have because you do not ask. So it's not that he's saying, so don't, start, don't stop asking for these things in life, but he begins to frame the way we implore God to move on our behalf. He says, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That it's not, don't stop asking, but reorienting yourself to what exactly it is you're asking for. Because is there someone in life that you guys think of when you think of us asking things from? Does anyone come to mind? There's someone that came to my mind. So when I think of my kids asking for things in life, who do they ask for? We're asking from Santa. Because Santa brings these things. And what it feels like sometimes is we, in the same way, us as adulterous people, ask God and misuse God to meet our illicit pleasures. What is that? How does Santa receive requests? Here's how it made sense in my head. When we begin seeing God as Santa, we just want him to give and then leave. We don't need you lingering around, bothering us with your presence. Just give us what we want and then let us be on our way. Just bring me that truck into my life in your way, in your time, and then I'll be happy and you can go about your business. And the gifts seem to be usually and exclusively physical. They're things that usually pertain to just things that we can see and touch, the tangible. And then the gifts are usually based on behavior. You know, if you're not good, if you're not on Santa's good list, he's going to give you some coal. You know, if you didn't check in a church and post your, post your attendance and then, you know what, also maybe tithe a little bit and do some behaviors and check some spiritual boxes, God's not going to be on your side. 
and we start making God's gifts contingent upon behavior. The gifts are based on behavior, and then this one just, just feels like it wrecks me. When we see God as Santa, the gifts are more important than the relationship. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Where do conflicts arise from when I'm not getting what I want? And so, God, I don't really want a relationship with you. I just want you to give me the things in life that I love. And when I'm not getting what I want, conflict arises. That guy didn't work for that. Why is he getting that? Why is she getting that? The gifts become more important than the relationship. Instead, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. How might we ask in a way that reflects kingdom eyes? What exactly are we asking for? And I might be struck by this idea, why should I pray at all? Why even pray and the extremes are, on one side, why bother? I mean, does God really care about that? He didn't care about my parking spot at Walmart this week. Why, why, why would I? Bless you. Why, why would I care? Why bother praying? And on the other side, man, David, all that spiritual jargon, yeah, 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 God's involved, but really, it depends on me. I got to do it. If I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And we go to one of these two extremes when it comes to prayer. James says, why does conflict exist? Because we're misusing God for our own gain. Either, on some level, why bother? Why even ask? And then when I don't ask, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to figure it out on my own. James instead, I think, is saying this. If we don't ask, he may not act. Not in an open theist way, like God doesn't know the future. We're not going down that road. But there's this tension that, that James is opening for us that if we don't ask, he may not act. And if we don't ask, certain things won't be done in our relationships, in our world, in our culture. If we don't ask, God may not act. Do we pray with desperate, dependent prayer for all the things taking place around us with kingdom eyes? Not my illicit gain, but more for him. And, and what would that look like? I think it starts here. We ask God first and foremost for more of himself. That we care about this relationship. I mean, when you see it with your kids, when they care more about the adoption day present or the birthday gifts than actually a relationship. Do we ask first and foremost for more of God, believing that his sovereign will will always be done? Do we believe that God is at work, working for his glory, and we're joining in him, him and what he's doing, and that our prayers are actually part of his design? That he's designed this mechanism as a way for us to join in and participate in his ultimate plan that we get to be a part of what he is doing. So we pray with desperate dependence. We ask with kingdom eyes, believing that even in the smallest things, this prayer matters for us. And who modeled that? I love what Jesus modeled in the garden because he tells us, did Jesus want to go to the cross if there was another way? 
He says that, and he says it three times in his prayer in the garden. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then a third time, goes back, and he went and prayed, saying the same words again. What's contained in Jesus' prayer that models what his little brother James is trying to tell us about, I think it's this, that he prayed to avoid crucifixion if possible. He prayed with this, God, change my circumstance. If there's another way than this, I would love that. And yet simultaneously contained in that very prayer said, Father, I acquiesce to your ultimate will. But my conflict with that person, if they just saw it my way and I got what I wanted, then my life would be better. If I got blank, I would just be happier. And instead, Jesus acquiesced to his father's ultimate will and said this, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from thee. Nevertheless, not as I will, but what you will. That we are misaligned adulterers who often ask God to provide for our immediate or illicit pleasures. And yet, despite, despite being misaligned and trying to misuse God, he continues to saturate us with his grace. Here's what James says. And that was point one. You were like, you've got to be kidding me if those are all balanced. They're not. Sort of, I hope. We'll, we'll see. Pick it up at verse three. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The conflict isn't just here horizontally with the who in my life. It's actually a vertical that I'm wanting something that I think would provide more meaning and significance. Instead, do you suppose there is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? And what does he do even when I am pursuing lesser joys? What does James say? He provides more grace. Even in the midst of my opposition, God still provides grace. So what is that grace? Grace being this, receiving something I didn't deserve. What is that? Believing his better is better. What has he provided? And some of these ideas might be familiar, but we're going to walk through them anyway, because here is this but God giving more grace. What is that? That Jesus' sacrifice for us was excruciatingly agonizing for him. That there was pain involved. And Jesus dies because there is no other way. That this is the process that God chooses to reconcile us to himself. And he pays a price for all our sins, this brokenness. And his payment, I love this about the Christian, the Christian message. I love this about life with Jesus. Is this an exclusive or the most inclusive message that anyone, no matter your background, no matter what you've done, where you've been, the offer of life in Jesus is for everyone. That Jesus' payment of forgiveness is for everyone who will trust him. And, and here's where prayer comes in. 
And Jesus understands circumstances will sometimes make it hard for us to trust. And that's when we pray most fervently. What are you praying for? Do you feel like your asks are beneath God as if they're too mundane or irrelevant that he would not even care about that? Or does it feel so far from being solved, you say, why bother? Why bother? Because nothing's changed. Is it in those moments of challenging times where we pray with more fervency for God to act? And then God uses everyone who trusts him. Not just elders, not just staff, not just ministry leaders. Everyone. In our Monday to Saturday, are we praying for God to move in and through the conflicts with that who that's in our life? Those in-laws that I have that always come and just give me a little, little, little wisdom on how I should reorganize my fridge and how I should organize the decor in my home. That ongoing relationship with maybe, oh, won't those neighbors ever figure it out? Do we believe that God gives more grace even as we step in and asking? Though our asks aren't always with kingdom eyes. We are misaligned creatures, misaligned adulterers who often ask God to provide for our illicit pleasures. And despite being misaligned, God continues to show grace. Do we see the grace that he provides week in and week out? And we long to align ourselves to God and experience his goodness. And so he gives us a list of ways we might choose to live different. Here's what he says. Pick it up in verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. And now he starts to give a list of how we might live differently when we experience that grace. Here's what he says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. We're not going to develop all of those equally. I just want to choose one, maybe two. But in your life groups or with someone What might it look like to unpack some of the ways we choose to live differently? So in your life group this week, maybe develop those lists a little bit more fully. But here's the list. We choose to live differently. What does it mean to submit ourselves to God, to resist the devil, to understand there is a force working to to diminish our joy in Jesus? He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse our hands, purify our hearts. And just an interesting phrase, right? What does he mean, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom? I think another way to say that, do we take sin seriously? Is this something we just go, ah, it's no big deal? Or do we actually sit? What does it mean to take sin seriously and humble ourselves before the Lord? The one that stood out to me, a conditional statement. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you guys usually think of following Jesus as a conditionality? Or is it unconditional? Have you ever thought of following Jesus as a condition? If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Because often we hear the unconditional pursuit of God's grace, right? It is available for everyone. And yet James adds a condition here. That if you draw near to God, there's confidence that he and his presence will invade your space more. 
that Sundays alone is not enough for the spiritual transformation that's taking place in our lives. Draw near to God, pursue him, and have confidence that his presence will be more available in those times of loneliness, in those times of looking for identity, in those times of pursuing things that we think will provide what we want in the midst of that conflict. He says, draw near to God. We are misaligned adulterers who often ask God to provide for our list of pleasures. And despite being misaligned, he continues to saturate us with his grace because we long to align ourselves to God and experience his goodness. We live differently. We live differently. And then I think he adds this compelling call. We're actually motivated by joy. It's the joy that comes with experiencing more of God's grace. This isn't simply behavior modification. Do what I said when I said it. Rather, how does this life change happen? I think James gives us a window into how he believes. It's the joy that comes with experiencing more of God's grace, presence, and what it means that we would be exalted. Here's what he says. Pick it up, verse six. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble that he believes God gives more grace. Do you want more grace? Do you want more of that? Do you believe that is what you want? Do you believe that would bring you joy in your life? There's the motivating call. So then he says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. If you're wondering how you'd get more of God, you're like, well, man, I want more of this. What does he say? <laughs> he will bring his presence when you draw near to him. That, that, that there is joy in God's presence in your life. More than the truck, more than your kid's behavior modification, his presence is enough. And James is calling us with that. And then he says this, humble yourselves before the Lord and what? We're at least gonna have one audience participation moment this morning. And he, thank you, Rhonda. Humble yourselves before the Lord and what? He will exalt you. Not necessarily in this life, he's saying, but a life beyond this. There is something where God is going to exalt you. There's the call, and I love the way C.S. Lewis frames it in Weight of Glory. You've heard me read this quote a few times. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit to you this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian life. Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We are half-hearted creatures. You know, if I bought that property up in the North Woods, those 20 acres, if I got that, I think my life would just be oh, I'd just, I'd just be so fulfilled. You know, if I got that F-150 parked in my garage, so all my neighbors then when they drove by went, man, that's a nice truck. If I got what I want versus looking over there across the street at my neighbor going, oh man, I, if I just had that, if I got what I wanted, if I got home and half-hearted creature of, if my spouse would just start listening to the way I thought life would be lived, then I'd be happy. If I got what I want, if my kids just sat down and behaved, then my life would be fulfilled. C.S. Lewis, and I think James says, 
We are half-hearted creatures. We are adulterers, he says. We're cheating on God to fill our pleasures. Instead, we're fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. There's a guy, Gary Vanderchuk. Does that name mean anything to anybody? So he's a, uh, a guy that has a variety of interests. You can go look him up. I'm not endorsing all that he does, but there was a clip that he had that a buddy showed me, and he said, someone came up and, and said, Gary, give me three words that would change my life. You know what he told him? You're gonna die. <laughs> James is offering an opportunity to be exalted beyond this life and no longer settling for lesser joys. But ought we not ask? Here's what James says. We believe because God is so good, when we pursue him, we receive more grace. There's freedom in that. No longer beating ourselves under this weight of guilt, but there's freedom and we benefit from a greater sense of his presence. No matter where we are, if we feel alone and isolated as the only one in the office who shares a certain conviction, draw near to God, James is called and we benefit from a greater sense of his presence, and we are exalted by him. Believing that we're going to die, but there's more to life beyond this. And so here's my encouragement this week. How might we respond to James 4? I hope we keep pondering God's miraculous grace at work in our lives, and that we pray, that we ask we do not receive because we do not ask, James says, and so we ask God to show us and free us from these lesser joys in our life. And then rest, rest in that. Don't take more responsibility than God has for you. Rest in his sovereign plan that he's at work in the relationships all around you, but that you're asking for more of him. Rather than just behavior modification, might I ask for my kids to be filled more with clarity and understanding about this adventure of getting to know God? Might I long for more of that and then rest that God is at work all around us and then realize you have an essential role. Do you believe you have an essential role and if we don't ask, God may not act? That if you don't ask with desperate dependence, certain things might not be done. So we ask with kingdom eyes. And then as we ask God to move, do we watch for his work in the parking spots of life, in the lesser things of life that might be considered mundane for us, and yet believe in God is active, and then step into those moments that are all around us. Pray with me. Oh God, we, we want to ask for more of you in our day to day. In the midst of the conflict that might be all around us, help us see it's not the who that we are in conflict with, but rather the what of how we might be misusing you. Help change our ass to be more kingdom-minded, more you-centric, that we want a relationship with you ultimately, and then see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Thank you, Jesus, for your glory, we pray. Amen.